0: Hello, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode 24 being recorded on April 21st, 2021. A lovely day outside my home here in New Jersey. I know it's supposed to rain later, but that's uh, not really, you know, the particulars. That's, uh, that particulars don't really matter. I hope you're doing well. Hope you are safe. Hope you are vaccinated, hopefully. And hope, uh, again, hope you're doing well. It's an interesting show this week because there was not a lot to discuss in terms of you know, free agency trades player movement you know we're not in the in the playoffs uh, of any of the uh, uh, of any of the major sports at least it's a bit of a strange time even though you know we finally got baseball back and it's and it's one of the rare times where you get three sport three of the four major North American sports going at once. But uh, this program is going to have a lot to do with retirement because it seems like, a, I don't know, it seems like to me a lot of guys retired in the past week. So I'm just going to go over sort of the, the legacy of all these guys. So Julian Edelman, Alex Smith, Jordan Reed, and TJ Ward all retired in the NFL. These are all the major retirements. There could have been some, some that weren't as big. And then also in the NBA, LaMarcus Aldridge retired after 15 years due to an, irregu- due to an irregular heartbeat. And then, uh, if uh, uh, not as uh, big a story, but Neil Walker retired. It was a good, ball- was a fine ball player. Played a lot here in the New York City area. Played for both teams. But uh, that that's most of. What this week is going to be. I'm going to talk a little bit about James Harden being injured again, which kind of ties in with the Lamarcus Aldridge thing. And then a little bit just in local baseball, just watching the Yankees struggle and lose five straight before pulling out a victory over the Atlanta Braves on Tuesday night, the 20th. So well, let's start off with the NFL retirements. We'll start with Julian Edelman. Now, Julian Edelman has a bit of a complicated past, I will say, because of one thing in particular. Uh, Now, first off, Julian Edelman retires after playing all 12 seasons in New England, 2009 to 2020. Finishes with... There are a lot of arguments. There's been an argument that Julian Edelman should be in the Hall of Fame despite somewhat subpar regular season numbers. But because he has great playoff numbers. Now, um, I'll get into. uh, First off, let me just read you his qualifications. So let's let's read some of his stats, okay? So he finished with six thousand eight hundred and twenty-two receiving yards, thirty-six touchdowns receiving, over twenty-six hundred return yards, four return touchdowns in the regular season. In the postseason. Considering the number of games he played, a lot stronger, 1,442 receiving yards and five receiving touchdowns in the playoffs. Three Super Bowl titles, five AFC titles, the MVP of Super Bowl 53 against the L.A. Rams, a 13-3 victory over 100 receiving yards in that game. Now, again, there is the argument that Julian Edelman belongs in the Hall of Fame, and if... Now, I could go with that argument... In, in another world, but the problem is some people may forget that at the beginning of the 2018 season, Julian Edelman tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. He appealed the suspension, but he ultimately was suspended by the league. Now, there's a zero-tolerance policy for me in terms of Hall of Fame. Look, you argue it a lot, you argue it a lot more for baseball, but the truth is if... If PEDs were uh, really permitted in the NFL, first off, he wouldn't be suspended. And secondly, Lyle Alzado would be in the Hall of Fame. If you don't know Lyle Alzado, he's a a big uh, defensive lineman for the Raiders, and I believe the Broncos as well, in the 70s into the 80s. He was a pretty big part of a couple of the Raiders, at least one of the Raiders' Super Bowl teams. But Lyle Alzado was... I think maybe the first NFL player who was found to be taking performance enhancing drugs. Now, this was huge. I think this was actually before any of this really happened or at least became public in the MLB because it was Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco were the first guys to really do it in the MLB and that was sometime sometime in the late 80s. This might have been earlier in the 80s. And Lyle Alzado, if you look at his career, he's probably a Hall of Fame player, but those statistics are perhaps misleading, as are, perhaps to an extent, Julian Edelman's statistics. So, look, I'm not even saying that... that it, It's not even like I'm saying that Julian Edelman took steroids in his, his entire career, because, if so, you, you think he would have been caught sooner than nine years in. Um, and though he had probably the best tenure of any wide receiver with Tom Brady I'm not going to say well and I'm not gonna say he's the best wide receiver that Tom Brady's ever had best wide receiver that Tom Brady's ever had is obviously Randy Moss who is a top two or three but well, he's at least a top four receiver of all time but the fact is that Brady Tom Brady generally has done more with less you know I've mentioned that before he you know he re- he relied he relied a lot in New England on Bill Belichick, and on his defense, he relies a lot on checkdowns. He he, he doesn't usually win with a lot of big-name receivers. Um, no, but you think about Tom Brady, he gets to the... He, when he wins the Super Bowl, he wins with a couple of serviceable receivers, guys who are not big. They're, I mean, they're somewhat fast, but they're just tough, play well in the slot, play underneath, and a couple of Solid running backs. You know, he besides Rob Gronkowski, he's never really won a championship with a guy who's going to end up in the Hall of Fame. But uh, as a uh, as a running back or a receiver, uh, I don't know. Well, actually, uh, now to be fair, now maybe maybe Mike Evans will will do that. We'll see what happens. But you know, generally th- that that's Tom Brady's style. So Julian Edelman, similar to kind of similar to Wes Welker, although he, Brady never won a title with Wes Welker. Julian Edelman was probably the most in, the wide receiver most integral to the fabric of the Patriots championship uh, dynasty. Um, particularly, I, I I think the Patriots are split into two dynasties. I think there's the first three titles and the second three titles because it's a 10-year gap between those two titles and they're two diff- completely different teams. And the only holdovers were really I think pretty much Brady and Belichick essential and uh, and uh, Robert Kraft. Uh, so, um, Edelman was incredibly crucial to the Patriots' dynamic, and he could—you could, could argue—he should have his number retired by the Patriots. He is probably their best wide receiver of all time, and probably their their second best overall pass catcher, uh, besides uh, um, behind Rob Gronkowski. But the thing is, when you test positive for performance-enhancing drugs. I, you lose credibility. You lose credibility. It's a, it's it's something that really put a, a damper, or I think that's a word, on his on winning the MVP of the Super Bowl. And you know, even without the even without the um, the, the PED usage, I don't know if he had would have the numbers to put him in the Hall of Fame anyway. I mean, when you finish with under 7,000 receiving yards for a career, unless it's in a very short time frame, in this day and age, you need to have probably at least 10,000 yards to be in the Hall of Fame as a wide receiver. That's—I think—that's probably a standard number. Even some, there are some guys who probably should be in the Hall of Fame who have over 10,000 yards who probably who aren't in, but that's just the way it goes. I think that's fair to say, um, but. Julian Edelman, again, best receiver of the Patriots, uh, well, has the best tenure of any Patriots receiver, the best tenure of any receiver with Tom Brady. But, uh, and, you know, his career should be celebrated because, look, for all the things that the Patriots have done or been accused of doing to win their titles, you know, from, you know, Spygate, well, Spygate didn't win a championship with Spygate, but, uh, you know, Deflategate, and, you know, and then there was the Tuck Rule and everything. The Julian Edelman thing is perhaps the least of their concerns uh, as to the the doubt of their legacy. But Julian Edelman, uh, look, I I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame, but for for that one mistake he made, despite that one mistake he made, he still did a lot of great things for New England. His catch against, I I, I mean, look, steroids can't make a difference as to how you can possibly make that catch between... The Patriots and the Falcons in the Super Bowl—that insane juggling catch that helped them come all the way back and make the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, and, and one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history. Maybe, maybe the second best all time, besides only the Bills Oilers game—that 28-point comeback. But uh, just a remarkable, remarkable career. And it's true—he was better in the postseason. You think about the 14-15 postseason, and the Ravens were what two years removed from their championship, and you forget that Julian Edelman had that passing touchdown that Brady laterals it all the way across the field, and Edelman hits Am- Amendola for a touchdown, only passing touchdown of his playoff career. I, I, i it might be of his entire career that led to a Patriots victory in a shootout, 35 to 31 went on to win the AFC title the next week in the well in that perhaps the Gate game, but Julian Edelman was integral to that because the Ravens very well could have you know won the Super Bowl and it could have changed what you see in the Ravens it could have changed the course of NFL history with you know you move from Joe Flacco to Lamar Jackson but Edelman for for that one despite that one mistake he made. I will say he, he is a credit to that Patriots franchise and was integral to their success over the last decade plus. Now, moving on to a guy who did not have the rings, but I think you could argue was could have uh, got a couple of tough breaks. But the one, the one thing I want to... Um, emphasize is this week is, or yeah, in this week, in this episode, is though retirement can be pretty sad, and for, for the fans in particular, you watch a, a player retire, you know, it, it means an end of an era, it means, I mean, some of the, so many of these guys have been playing since I was young, so for example, the next guy I'm going to talk about here is Alex Smith, Alex Smith has been playing in the NFL since I was seven years old. So it it, it does bring an emotional connection because you, you move on in a chapter. You close a chapter, and now you just hope to open a new one. We'll see what Alex Smith can do after his career, or after his NFL playing career, because it should be celebrated, a lot of these guys and what they did. But one thing I'll talk about with Alex Smith, and one thing I will later talk about with Neil Walker is, it's not just the retirement. It's just the miracle that these guys even played. Because first off, there's what? Like, once you get to college, for example, there's probably a less than one percent chance you will make it to the pros. Make it to the pros in any any sport, in whichever sport you're you're playing. It's very unlikely, and I, I've seen those ads for. The NCAA, as of late, you know, we should celebrate the players who are perhaps the NCAA athletes who don't go on to professional careers. Because they're not as recognized and they go on to do great things in different fields. Because obviously there's a very limited limited group of people. So that's one one reason why these guys should be celebrated and the fact that they, they were able to last in this league for so long. But uh, a- Alex Smith is, is one of them where th- there are... There was truly a another big piece of information that really could not have not have only ended his career, but but it could have ended his life. So Smith retires after being in the NFL for 16 seasons, but playing for 14, he missed two full seasons due to injury. So he played from 2005 through 2007 and 2009 through 2012 with the San Francisco 49ers, 2013 through 17 with the Kansas City Chiefs, 2018 and 20 with the Washington football team. So first off, let's just talk about the miracle aspect, and the, the miracle of science, and you know the miracle of hope and, and faith and all these things. The fact that Alex Smith even played in 2020 is a miracle. I, th- I think we all know about uh, the 2018 season, where he took the hit, where he uh, broke his leg in in, in multiple places, and uh, I mean, a lot of people pointed out how s- uh, this, the eerie similarities to uh, to Joe Theismann's injury, which of course ended his career, a career that that very well could have put him in the Hall of Fame, and. You know, we not only were we not sure were we thinking that Alex Smith was not going to play again. I look. I'm gonna be honest. I haven't seen it yet, but I know there's an E60 piece about Smith. He could have lost his life due to infection, due to the infection of this leg. So the fact that he even survived. Shows you the miracle of uh, the miracle of science and, and 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 medical advancement, and then just having that will—the will to compete, not only the will to to recover from this, but uh, and just just move on with your life in a normal way, but the will to compete again. It took what a year and a half, but he got back out on the field. I, it's remarkable. I, and that's not just a testament to him. That's obviously a testament to everyone who worked on his leg, all the all the doctors and nurses. It's a testament to his family, it's a testament to his wife and kids for giving him that emotional support. And of course it is a testament to Alex Smith himself that he actually got back on the field. And he, give him credit, I mean Washington did not have a great season in particular. They went I think 7 and 9 but again, in the NFC East, it's good enough to win the division. Alex Smith quarterbacked the Washington football team to a division title after, nearly, after having an infection that could have ended his life. It's truly remarkable. One comeback player of the year in the NFL, and I've heard people say, and I would argue rightfully so, that the comeback player of the year award should be named now after Alex Smith. You can make that argument. Now, unfortunately, he did not play in that playoff game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in which Taylor Heineke gave the eventual Super Bowl champions a real run for their money, and and perhaps proved he's the next quarterback of the Washington football team. But just that Alex Smith even got to play again, let alone play in the playoffs. I mean, you think about... Uh, oh, I ma- I mentioned this already. You think about... I, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned the scene from... Moneyball near the end of the movie, he hit the ball. He hit the ball forty yard, hit the ball one hundred forty feet over the fence in left center field, and didn't even know it. So the fact that, look, Alex Smith never won a Super Bowl, but the fact that he even got back to play is remarkable for his career. Fairly impressive, a very good touchdown to interception ratio. 199 touchdowns, which is not a lot by NFL standards, but 199 touchdowns to 109 picks, so nearly a 2-to-1 touchdown-to-pick ratio, which is, believe it or not, Tom Brady has about, I think, a two, 2.3 touchdown-to-1 to interception ratio, something like that. So it's it, Alex Smith was really, although he was not as great a quarterback and, and perhaps did not have the advantages that a Tom Brady or a Joe Montana or or a Peyton Manning has, doesn't have those sort of remarkable talents. He's a fine game manager. You cannot say that enough. One of the ultimate game managers. Now, Smith, you know, you think about it, the first five or six years of his career, if the Niners had been managed differently, that could have completely altered his course. Let's remember, this guy got picked number one overall. Back in 2005, and now, now to be fair, there are a lot of expectations piled onto a guy who's picked first overall. And Aaron Ro- and Aaron Rodgers, let's face it, Aaron Rodgers overshadowed Alex Smith. Two guys, both from I believe, both from um, the Bay Area. But uh, you know, we t- kept talking about um, Aaron Rodgers, who's who is from the Bay Area and getting picked. Uh, hoping to get picked by the 49ers first overall. and uh, okay so Smith is from uh, closer to San Diego, but still two guys from California. And everyone talked about how Aaron Rodgers he was hoping to get picked first overall. you know he went to, he's from uh, from the from Northern California from the Bay Area, went to junior college, transferred, went to Cal Berkeley and was hoping to get picked over and then you know there's that there's that famous footage of him just waiting 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 and finally getting picked late by the packers late in that first round or at least a lot later than people expected and what Aaron Rodgers did compared to what Alex Smith did is obviously a lot more impressive. Aaron Rodgers is one of is a top 10 quarterback of all time. But th- that's that's just part of the di- the difficult aspect of Alex Smith's legacy is that he was overshadowed so many times, but he was such a good quarterback who just caught a couple of bad breaks. So, in particular, all that pressure put on him as the number one overall pick. Then, the 49ers come in, now you understand why they had the number one overall pick, poorly mismanaged, terribly mismanaged. Mike Mike Singletary was, was the coach early on for that team when Alex Smith was there, and Just did a poor job. Really did a a poor job, and that team suffered for... That team was one of the laughingstocks of the NFL for about five or six years when Alex Smith was there. It wasn't necessarily his fault, but he didn't necessarily carry that team on his back either. Didn't have a lot of great years early on. Now, then, uh, 2011. 2011... He comes in. Jim Harbaugh comes in. Now, Jim Harbaugh, a lot of people think now, he's very overrated at Michigan and all that. Why hasn't he been fired yet? But so many people discredit him. For, I think, what he's done at Michigan, I think he's done a good job at Michigan, even though he has, he ran into a very good Ohio State team. I mean, you could argue they they should have won that game at Ohio State where it looked like perhaps Curtis Samuel was short on fourth down in overtime. Maybe Michigan goes play play for the national championship. I don't know. But regardless, going back to Harbaugh's time with the 49ers, people forget how he completely turned around that franchise. Alex Smith, before 2011, had never thrown under 10 interceptions in a full season. He had missed the entire 2008 season. You may remember that was... Sean Hill and JT O'Sullivan j- uh, jockeying for that quarterback spot, for that uh, number one spot. Missed a lot of time. Team was awful around him. He pretty much had, you know, you know he had Vernon Davis, great tight end, but didn't have, but was sacked constantly. The team was awful. Hadn't thrown over 3,000 yards or under 10 picks in a full season. Until 2000, 2011, then Jim Harbaugh comes in. Jim Harbaugh, if you actually don't know, Jim Harbaugh was actually a fairly successful quarterback in the NFL. Threw for a significant amount of yards. Came within, I think, one dropped Hail Mary of putting the Colts in the Super Bowl in 1995. Was actually a pretty successful quarterback, even though he's, you know, he's not considered one of the all-time greats, of course. But he's done a lot, did a lot of good things in the NFL as a as a quarterback. And so he comes in, Alex Smith really turned around in 2011, really, really turned around. And that team marched all the way to the NFC championship game, came within a couple of bad Kyle Williams turnovers, perhaps, of going to the Super Bowl and would have faced the New England Patriots had they they not, you know, Kyle Williams in particular, not made those two bad turnovers against the Giants at home in the NFC title game. And you think about Alex Smith, you think about how great he was in the divisional round against the Saints that year. So many people forget it's, you know, the catch three with Vernon Davis. I, I'm not talking about that, but of course the catch one was, you know, Dwight Clark against the Cowboys, and then there was T.O. against the Packers. And then the third one was Vernon Davis's huge catch against the Saints. And of course Alex Smith made that throw, but a lot of people forget that a couple minutes before that, before Drew Brees had given the Saints the lead, I think it was about two minutes to go, and Alex Smith comes up with this unbelievable play. On third and seven, he goes... It's a QB draw, and he just runs left, and the line pulls left, and he keeps running behind them, and he goes something like 15, 20, maybe 30 yards for a touchdown. And th- th- that's part of the, his charisma. He's a great run; he's a good running quarterback when necessary. So the things he did for that for that team, I think, were huge and that ultimately led to Colin Kaepernick being the guy in San Francisco for a brief time and getting them them to the Super Bowl. Because in 2012, Alex Smith, the Niners were, I want to say, 6-2, 6-2-1. Two, two they were really good early on. And then Alex Smith got hurt. Colin Kaepernick comes in and does a pretty good job filling his, filling his seat. Now, Smith is ready to come back within... I don't know, maybe a month, month and a half. But the point is he comes back and Kaepernick really has gotten the hot hand. And under Kaepernick, Kaepernick, the Niners go to the Super Bowl. And then, of course, there's the infamous blackout. And Kaepernick comes within perhaps an arguably bad non-call on on holding Michael Crabtree in, in the corner. Of taking the Niners to a world championship, and, and I mean I don't know what exactly happens, but if Alex Smith does not get hurt, perhaps the Niners do win the Super Bowl, which really boosts his, which really boosts his legacy, boosts his, his resume. Now, t- to be fair, he finished with a two and five career record in the playoffs. However, he had 14 touchdowns and two interceptions, which is remarkable. And it's not like he threw for a very low amount of yards. Threw for 1,745 yards. He threw for almost 250 yards a game. By comparison, Tom Brady, now this is in the regular season, is a little different, but Tom Brady on average throws for about 262, 263 yards a game in the regular season. And again, Alex Smith, obviously no Tom Brady, but in, what he did in a short period of time in the playoffs, not bad. It's just that his team wasn't as good around him. So, but, but, you know, Smith then goes to Kansas City and doesn't have a lot of playoff success, but leads the team to the playoffs multiple times, gives a lot of teams a run for their money. I mean, there was that infamous collapse. That's not really just him. It's, It's the Chiefs as a whole against the Colts, that infamous collapse against the Indianapolis Colts in the wild card game. And uh, there was that really tough loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers with the hold by Eric Fisher on the two-point conversion. A Kansas City team that did a lot of things, but ultimately Patrick Mahomes was the guy who took them over the top. And then, But then Smith goes to Washington. Smith goes to Washington, and in his last year, even after this injury and all this horrible stuff that happens to him, gets the team to the playoffs. So it's a guy who is not going into the Hall of Fame, but but... It's a guy who had a couple of different things gone differently. He may have been there. Now, to be fair, I just want to point out here that he's actually better statistically than a lot of big names. Now, some of these are guys that aren't really technically in the modern era and perhaps played a couple fewer years, but these are guys that are all-time great. Smith actually has more passing yards than a number of Hall of Famers, including Jim Kelly, Steve Young, Y.A. Tittle, Troy Aikman, Kurt Warner, Len Dawson, Terry Bradshaw, Joe Namath, Bart Starr, George Blanda, Bob Greasy, Bobby Lane, Roger Staubach, Norm Van Brocklin, Otto Graham, and Sammy Baugh. He also has more touchdowns than Lane, Greasy, Baugh, Ken Stabler, uh, Graham, Namath, Van Brocklin, Aikman, Starr, Staubach, Sid Luckman. A lot of a lot of big names. Now, that's that's... Part of that is the fact that he has played in a different era, a more pass-happy, more offensive era. But you know, some of these guys were all-time greats, who still could have been, you know, as good as, as impressive statistically as he could have been today. So that's just something. That's just something to say. A couple more guys I want. I want to bring up in terms of NFL retirements. Now, two guys who, obviously, Julian Edelman was the biggest name here, then probably Smith, then Jordan Reed. Jordan Reed retires after six seasons in the NFL, six with Washington, or make that seven seasons in the NFL, six with Washington, and one with the 49ers. He missed all of 2019. And it's unfortunate. You know, it's another guy who probably could have played, probably could have been an all-time great if, if not for injuries, in the last two or three years in particular. Finished with just over 3,600 yards, 28 touchdowns, made the Pro Bowl in 2016 and showed a lot of promise, but it's a guy who was in a tough circumstance. Washington has not been that great a team over the last 30 years or so and hasn't had a quarterback that has been near the top of the NFL rankings and probably 35 really Pro- they probably haven't had a quarterback who has been among the NFL's best since Joe Theismann, I would argue and even then Joe you know Joe, the- Joe Theismann is not in the Hall of Fame but Washington has struggled for a long time and and Jordan Reed was just kind of a byproduct of that despite all the talent he had played with the 49ers this past year and could have been pretty good if the Niners were totally healthy, but Garoppolo was out. I mean, Dio Samuel was out. So much of their defense was hurt. It was a pandemic. And then, you know, it's just a tough year for the Niners and kind of a, in a way, an apropos finish for Jordan Reed's career. Um, but going back to Smith for just one second, just... The one thing I want to emphasize is, despite what he could have been, just the miracle that he came back from that injury—not only came back from that injury and kept his life, which was, I mean, according to, 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 to his doctors, was in danger— the fact that he could actually step on a football field again and perform the, the way the way he did was uh, truly, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's remarkable. One more guy I want to discuss in the NFL, and that's T.J. Ward. T.J. Ward, a solid safety, retires after eight seasons, had not played in the NFL since 2017, was on the practice squad for the Arizona Cardinals this past year, or perhaps on the off-season roster this past year, but hadn't played a game or played it down since 2017 in the regular season. Now, played eight seasons, 2010 through 13 with Cleveland, 14 through 16 with Denver. That's probably where his best play came. And 2017 with the Buccaneers. Won the Super Bowl with Denver as part of that solid 2015 Bronco defense that stunned the Carolina Panthers 24 to 10. He's a two-time Pro Bowler. And really, Ward, though... Overshadowed, obviously, by Von Miller, who had maybe the best year of his career, definitely the post, def- definitely the best postseason of his career, and of course had you know that strip sack and one Super Bowl MVP. The defense, even though Peyton Manning is a top three quarterback of all time and has one of the best passing arms of all time, Peyton Manning was in his twilight. He was the sheriff riding off into the sunset. It was not a great year for him. He, he lost his job for a brief time. Let's remember Brock Osweiler was the quarterback for a little while. But that team, so that team was really carried by its defense. And though Von Miller was definitely the guy, T.J. Ward was a crucial part of Denver's Super Bowl winning defense. So let's remember, he recorded an interception in the Super Bowl. And on top of that, he's the guy who pretty much iced the game when he recovered... The uh, the fumble by Cam Newton, that's, the of course, the infamous fumble where Cam Newton looks like he's going to go for the ball and then he decides not to go into the pile. He, he just stays out of it. But the point is, T.J. Ward recovered that ball, got it at the four-yard line, Broncos punched it in, and we get a two-point conversion, the last pass at Peyton Manning's career. They lock it up for a 24-10 victory and uh, win their third title. And... T.J. Ward was a crucial part of that team. Obviously, difficult, again, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, to watch somebody from your team go off and win somewhere else. But that's beside the point there. That's just that's just me throwing stuff out there. But a, a lot of retirements, a lot of retirements this past week, a lot of significant retirements. And we'll continue with that in just a moment. We'll talk about LaMarcus Aldridge, but right after this quick break here on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, welcome back, and we're just going to talk about now the retirement of LaMarcus Aldridge, who hangs up his jersey after 15 seasons, nine with the Trailblazers, and six with the Spurs, and then this last couple of weeks with the Brooklyn Nets, he had just been released by the Spurs and had signed with the Nets, Really, a br- bad br- bad break for Brooklyn. Great tongue twister, by the way. Uh, citing health concerns due to an irregular heartbeat. Now, this is really a tough break for the Nets with James Harden and Kevin Durant both being out. I'll get into that more in a moment. But let's talk about Aldridge's career. Uh, finishes with 19,951 points. That's 19.4 points per game, 8,478 rebounds. rebounds per game, and over 2,000 assists, which it wasn't actually that one. He had about two assists a game, which is, eh, it's it's okay. It's fairly decent for a power forward slash center. But LaMarcus Aldridge, pretty iconic player over the last decade and a half with the Trailblazers. Everybody points to Damian Lillard, of course, but this guy was integral to their success and was really a big name for this organization. Did some great things with the Spurs. I, I mean, you know, nobody could fill Tim, Tim Duncan's shoes, but LaMarcus Aldridge did a pretty solid job in the last few years, at, not only in complimenting Duncan, but but in becoming his successor. Uh, Aldridge also averaged over a block a game. Seven all-star appearances, seven all, seven-time all-star over 15 seasons, Helped the Spurs to the Western Conference Finals in 2017. He can actually still get a ring with the Nets this year if the Nets win this one. Uh, Just point out, perhaps his biggest personal or biggest team achievement when he took the Spurs to the Western Conference Finals or helped take the Spurs to the Western Conference Finals in 2017. You may remember that that was the year when the Spurs had a huge lead in Game 1 of that series. And then Kawhi Leonard was hurt on just a just a cheap play by Zaza Pachulia, who pretty much stepped into his shooter's space, and Leonard, I think, tweaked his ankle at, on Pachulia's foot and just came down on it. Uh, that... The spurt, that completely turned the tide of the game. He left the game. Warriors made a tremendous comeback to come back and not only win the game and not only win the series, but sweep the series and go on to win their second NBA championship in three years and uh, later on to win their third and four. Ended, it essentially ended Kawhi Leonard's tenure in San Antonio as he, you know, made his demand to go to Toronto When and, and you know, Lamarcus Aldridge was a key part of that team that could have been a continuation of the Spurs dynasty, moving on to just a second a second group of guys behind Greg Popovich. But just wasn't meant to be. Lamarcus Aldridge, 15 years, a fine career, perhaps a Hall of Fame player. He's got some pretty good stats. Uh, defensively in particular, but an an iconic player for the Trailblazers organization. It's a a shame as to the timing of it. He had just gotten to the Nets and would have made, I think, a fairly big difference. He's obviously not what he was in Portland or or even for much of his time in San Antonio, but would have made a big difference with that team and and really added some defensive depth, which that team needs badly. Um, So, I mean, with the exception of Kevin Durant, uh, that, that team is not a great defensive team. But speaking of the Nets, they've had a tough go of it, despite uh, entering today, Wednesday, April 21st, when I record this, being half a game, uh, only half a game back of the Philadelphia 76ers for the best record in the Eastern Conference. The Nets have have lost KD to injury. They've lost Kevin Durant to injury for a significant amount of time. I mean, Kyrie Irving, you never know if he whether he's actually going to play or not, or what you know what what he'll actually do. And now James Harden, out indefinitely with a right hamstring injury, possibly expected to be back by the start of the playoffs. That's what they're hoping. Now, that, that part is good news for the Nets. I, I've, heard, I've heard that rumor, at least, that he's hopefully expected to be back by the start of the postseason. Uh, got about 10 or so games, I think, left in the regular season because I know it's about the same with the NHL this year. Usually the NHL is a little ahead of the NBA, but things obviously changed. This season, so that's that's the good news that he, he's. Uh, there are rumors that he'll be back by the start of the playoffs, but the problem is, uh, you don't know what James Harden is going to be back, and it's not his fault. Obviously, you get hurt, you get hurt, and you know some some guys can get a mental block from trying to return from injury. James Harden's done that multiple times. Kevin Durant has definitely done that multiple times. You know, you you, got to see... And that that shows how in the next few weeks, Blake Griffin in particular is going to be very important. Blake Griffin's going to be important. Joe Harris is going to be important. And those guys that... Funny to think that Blake Griffin's a secondary guy, but those secondary scorers are going to be huge for the Nets in trying to hold off some of these teams. I mean, they will make the playoffs. It's for sure. You know, I mean, they're almost guaranteed to make the playoffs this year, and they'll probably... Make it as one of the top three seeds. It's it. We all know that it's going to be Philly, Boston, and Milwaukee. They're all right there, right next to each other. Those are going to be the three teams in the top three. It's just a question as to where each team ends up in terms of seeding. And then you've got that middle that middle group. You know, it's where it's Atlanta, Boston, the Knicks, probably, and and, and um, but, you know, it's. But it looks like the Nets should still be fine. It's just a question of how healthy James Harden is going to be when he gets back, assuming you know he does get back around that point, because look, obviously, outside of the top five or, or, or six teams in the East, it, it's not a very strong conference. So, I mean, the Nets could possibly breeze through the first round, but it, it you know, when you get into the dog days, into the conference semifinals. It's, you're going to need James Harden at, at at peak at peak health, so it's very tough break for the Nets. We'll see what happens with them. Moving on to Major League Baseball, and by the way, I just want to let you know. I just want to tack this on. I wanted to tack on at the end. Um, uh, Patrick Marlowe breaking the NHL record for games playing. I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, just you know, local baseball. Pretty much um, this past week, uh, a horrible showing by. Yankee fans who were I mean obviously it's understandable that they've been very disappointed. They lost 5 in a row, a team that's been very underwhelming, lost lost I mean has really gotten knocked out by knocked down pretty hard by Tampa this or this first month of the season and of course last year as well obviously blowing that series against Tampa Bay in San Diego and you know the whole situation uh, the, the Rays really getting into all this Chapman's head, apparently, and the suspension that stemmed from that. So it's it has not been an, early, a, a not been an easy early part to this season for the Yankees, but, I mean, th- this past week with the, the fans throwing the baseballs on the field, you know, I, I mentioned this last week, you know, it, you, if a call is really bad and you're really close, I think you actually have a right to throw stuff on the field. Not to say I'm proud of that, but... Uh, but it, i mean if you're just doing it because your team is performing poorly and you're really i mean you're really throwing with such such uh, such horrible intent you know it's just classless and it, it's, a, it's an absolute shame the yankees do actually finally pull off a victory they they take down the atlanta braves on tuesday by a score of 3 to 1 they got a lot of small ball Uh, scored in the eighth on a a wild pitch and uh, bases-loaded walk. Uh, And, uh, you know, another another weird one is, I mean, another weird thing is the fact that, uh, as this comes back to mind, that Jay Bruce retires after, uh, let's see, I think 13, not 14 seasons. Very abrupt. I don't think anyone, I mean, obviously he struggled, but I don't think anyone really saw that. Coming and the Yankees are still waiting for Luke Voigt to come back, but the Yankees do finally pull off a victory and I mean we'll see. Yeah, it's been really they just they just have not been able to hit at times. So it's a question of whether they can actually go back to to small ball when they really need it, and a question of whether Aaron Boone will stop playing analytics the whole time and actually let his guys pitch because this game. Last night, uh, at least at the time I'm I'm recording this, but this game last night where Jamison Tyon had 80 pitches and had given up one run over five innings, and Boone pulled him. No injury, nothing. And, you know, I, I, I would generally say that analytics works in Major League Baseball, but you cannot have such a quick leash, such a short leash on your pitchers. Really, everybody should have learned this last year. Everybody should have learned this last year when Kevin Cash pulled Blake Snell in the sixth game of the World Series, the way he was pitching and how he pitched him so early. Even if a guy has a perfect game going, he'll probably get pulled in the sixth inning if he's at a at a decent pitch count. It's ridiculous. So it's just a question of of you know whether you can be overmanaged. That's part of what happened with Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi. One of the reasons that I thought he was probably getting fired was the fact that he just overmanaged the team. He overmanaged the bullpen in particular. So I, I, I'm not sure the, the Yankees look. You got a lot of time left. The last time the Yankees won the World Series, they were one of the uh, they were mediocre through the first two months of the season, and obviously that was a long time ago. So can the Yankees really? just finally get back on track and just get out of their heads. It's to that point where, you know, you lose in the playoffs, you get deep in the playoffs, you you eventually get these high expectations on you, and you just you start thinking way too far ahead in the future. This happened, different sport, but remember how this happened with the Pittsburgh Steelers a couple of years ago when they kept thinking... Okay, we're gonna play New England. It's Us in New England. AFC Championship game. Let's get ready. Us in New England. Us in New England. Us in New England. And they get knocked out by Jacksonville in the second round at home. And they just choked. You focus too much on what's all the way down the road, and you don't you don't think in the present. You don't act like you're in the present moment. So that that's that's one of the biggest issues if if you're the Yankees, is is trying not to think about the postseason failures of the last two years, but just trying to get back there. Get to that, cross that bridge when we get to it. That, that's, that's your biggest concern if you're a Yankee fan. Now, one more retirement I do want to mention, and that is Neil Walker. Neil Walker, a, well, if you're from around my area, you know, former Yankee, former Met. But more importantly, a seven-year member of the Pittsburgh Pirates, a Pittsburgh native, played with the Pirates for the first seven years of his career, 2009 through 15. I'd have to imagine he was heartbroken when he was traded to the Mets for John Neese before the 2016 season, played a year and a half with the Mets, was part of that team that was defending the National League crown, and then fell in a heartbreaker to the San Francisco Giants in the wild card game at home, was there with the Brewers in 2017. Went to the Yankees in 2018, Marlins in 2019, and wrapped up his career with the Phillies in 2020. Was not playing this year. Uh, not a bad career, honestly. Car- carved out a nice name for himself. 2014 Silver Slugger, a 267 career batting average, 149 home runs, 609 RBIs. Not bad numbers for a. I mean, a second baseman, even though he was not really as recognized as perhaps he should have, good fielder, and not just that, he couldn't just play second base, he was a good utility infielder at times, or at least on the right side of the infield. But, you know, I mentioned before that we have to talk about miracles on this episode. and You know, retirements are sad, but just the the fact that he got there. You know, Neil Walker, it's rare for... For for a person to be able to make it to the major leagues, not many people are able to do that. Uh, also, the fact that he got drafted, that picked by the Pirates, he's a Pittsburgh native and he played seven years for the Pirates, by the majority of his career there. But that was really cool. A little bit of back, a little bit more background info on Neil Walker. His sister Carrie, uh, who I believe was, I can't remember if she was a basketball player or a volleyball player in college, just to point that out, is married to, is married and has three kids with Don Kelly. Who uh, a great a good ball player, good uh, I think kind of in uh, utility infielder, outfielder, left-handed hitter. Did a lot of good work with the Detroit Tigers. I think he had a big walk-off against the Oakland A's of the sack fly game to the 2000 either 11, I'm trying to think 11, 12, or 13 division series. But fine ball player uh, who actually preceded Neil. They never played together. But he actually went to the Pir- He actually played for the Pirates before Neil did. He played for the Marlins before Neil did, and now actually is a coach for the Pirates. So here's where the miracle thing comes in, okay? Neil's dad, Tom, pitched six seasons in the MLB. Never pitched for the Pirates, but he, and he's not from Pittsburgh. But he pitched six seasons in the MLB. Uh, and he started out with the Montreal Expos. Um, his his brother-in-law actually pitched for the Expos, just to point that out. Kurt Lang, I believe his name was. So, 1972 was Tom's rookie year with uh, With the Expos. And he was at winter camp in Puerto Rico. Or some sort of winter training in Puerto Rico. Now, um, Roberto Clemente, who is, of course, from Port- who was, of course, from Puerto Rico, probably I, I think you could argue the greatest foreign-born ball player of all time. I would say Ichiro Suzuki is up there, and there are there are a few players that are up there. But Roberto Clemente is among them, one of the greatest right fielders ever, maybe the greatest arm of any player ever, one of the best pure hitters, and an all-time iconic ball player. There's still a movement to uh, to have his number retired all time, and a career Pittsburgh Pirate. So in 1972 or perhaps the very end of 71, Clemente, a great humanitarian, was getting ready to aid the people of Nicaragua after a devastating earthquake in Central America. So... Walker was one of a number of people who offered to help get on this. I believe it was a, a plane, I believe it was a plane, not a helicopter. I believe it was a plane. But the plane and he so he offered to help. Was was very willing to help. But the plane was so full that, uh, that Clemente told him to, just to go home, just to get home. Now, Tom Walker was either 23 or 24 at the time, and if you don't know this then, I apologize to tell you, that plane crashed. And I I don't believe anyone survived, but certainly not Roberto Clemente, who had just recorded his uh, 3,000th, exactly, 3,000th hit the the previous year. That was his last ever hit. um, And brought his... Not uh, not only his career to an end and, and cut it short probably by a couple of years, but brought his life to a to an end about forty or fifty years too soon, uh, at least. And it was a, a devastating loss, and I mean, if there's any way, I mean, if there's any way you're going to go, um, I mean, it, it's considering what a great humanitarian he was, it's it's somewhat appropriate that that he went, trying to help a number of people in need. But anyway, uh, Tom Walker was only about 23 or 24 when this happened, and the, the funny thing about that is, we talk about miracles, talk about miracles, and Neil Walker is only about 35 or 36. Neil Walker wasn't born until 1985. I'm going to assume his sister was is about the same age, roughly, the, or, or within a few years. I can't imagine Tom Walker was a father at this point. So it was, it was 13 years after this crash, 13 years after this crash, that Neil Walker was born. And I don't know if that's how he became a Pirates fan, or he became so entwined with this organization because of... Uh, the legacy of Roberto Clemente. I, I would bet that has a lot to do with it. But how big a miracle is it that that even though, unfortunately, we lost Roberto Clemente so young, how big a miracle is it that, that Tom Walker was not on that plane? And that, one, that anyone survived, but that Tom Walker was not on that plane, and he lived to pitch six seasons in the MLB, he lived to have a couple of kids, or at least two children, I'm not sure how many exactly, and that one of those kids could not only play baseball to grow, the one of that kid could be born, one that that child could be born, but that he could also go on to, to play baseball, to appreciate baseball, and to play in the major leagues, and to play for the Pittsburgh Pirates for the majority of his career. How great is that? How big, it really, It really is, if you think about it, a miracle. Neil Walker himself is t- the fact that Neil Walker was even born is a miracle. And so it, it kind of put you know the cycle, it keeps going from, I mean think about it, it was wow, it's almost it, almost 50 years ago that Roberto Clemente was killed in that plane crash, but his legacy, his humanitarian effort will live on. And, and, and the fact that that plane was full led to a, a career coming to an end 50 years later., a, literally, you know I mean unfortunately he wasn't able to get to Nicaragua, but he was able to he was able to help inadvertently create a life, create multiple lives, and save a number of lives. And he did a lot of great things for his career. So uh, that's, uh, that's just something I thought was really cool, something I figured I could point out. Now, um, a more up, an even more uplifting story this week um, is that Patrick Marlowe of the San Jose Sharks broke the NHL's record for games played at 1,768. Previously held by Mr. Hockey and perhaps the greatest all-around hockey player of all time, Gordie Howe, this record was set in 1962. Record was set in 1962. That was about the same time that I think the Berlin Wall was going up. So th- think about how long ago that is. Remarkable and the fact that any of Gordy Howe's records have been broken is insane. And and not, not just broken, but, but broken now. Broken over 20 years after Wayne Gretzky retired, broken by a player other than Wayne Gretzky. And obviously, you know, Patrick Marlowe is no Gordie Howe, he's no Wayne Gretzky, but he's an all-time great player, and the fact that anybody has that stamina is truly remarkable. This guy's played in the NHL for 24 years. He is the face of the Sharks. I mean, Joe Thornton was another one, but Patrick Marlowe really is the face of the San Jose Sharks and the face of hockey in the Bay Area. Really, the the, ho- the face of hockey... South of Vancouver and uh, north of uh, north of Southern California, Patrick Marlowe is the face of of hockey. Over five hundred goals, well over a thousand points, and now the all time leader in games played. It was very nice. Uh, Commissioner Bettman had a very nice message for him after the first shift. I love that they did this. They wait they waited until the until the first stoppage of play, of course. But it was after the first shift that the the crowd in Las Vegas, or really in, I think it's either Henderson or Paradise, Nevada, at, at home of the Vegas Golden Knights, really paid tribute to Patrick Marlowe. And I don't remember if it was Commissioner Bettman who said it, but whoever said it was absolutely right. Gordie Howe, if he were still alive today, absolutely would have been in that building in Las Vegas. Even during the pandemic, he would have been in the building to celebrate Patrick Marlowe. I was kind of hoping that his son's Mark and... Uh, well, he has he has four uh, four kids, but I was hoping in particular his sons, uh, Mark and Marty, who, who played for a long time in the NHL, and Mark is in the Hall of Fame, would have been there. I'm not sure if they were, right, but I was hoping they would do something a little bigger. It probably would have been a little bigger if it was not during the pandemic, but Patrick Marlowe, a great all-time player, I you know a, a 24-year veteran. That's another thing we talk about. Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe played. Now, obviously, Gordy Howe is discounted about six or seven years, really, because WHA games weren't counted. But Gordy Howe played, I think, like 26 years in the NHL. That also shows the stamina of Marleau. That and part of that is also, I think, the fact that the NHL has played maybe a, a few more, couple more games, few more games per year. But the fact that Marlowe was able to do that in 24 years, whereas it took uh, Gordy 26 to accumulate those numbers, absolutely remarkable. Uh, and and the fact that Marlowe, for the most part, has, has spent his entire career with the Sharks. Spent a year in Toronto, and I think a year in Pittsburgh, and part of a year in Toronto, or, or part of a year in Pittsburgh and a year in Toronto. But you know, he came back, came back to San Jose and has been as important to that franchise as anyone. So it it really is a testament. And the fact, something that's even more cool, two guys from Saskatchewan, Gordie Howe and Patrick Marlowe, both from Saskatchewan. So if you don't know the Canadian provinces, Saskatchewan is, uh, you know, when you think of Canada, you probably think of Toronto first and foremost, Ontario, the most populated province out of the 13 in Canada. Then, you know, you think of probably Montreal and, and, and Quebec, you think of uh, ter- uh, Vancouver and British Columbia, you think of Edmonton and Calgary and Alberta, and perhaps even Winnipeg and Manitoba. Saskatchewan's one of the l- one of the last provinces of which you think, uh, not only in terms of, of NHL talent, but in terms of culture in general. In general, perhaps, it's, it's a lot of farmland, not a lot of big cities like... Like Toronto or, or Montreal or Vancouver, or, you know any of the cities I've just mentioned, and it, it's you know most of the best NHL players generally probably I would say come out of Ontario or Quebec. Good number of them come out of British Columbia or, or Alberta, perhaps. Nova Scotia's produced uh, some solid ones as well, but not a lot of guys you think of in Saskatchewan. So I, I think just that connection I think is is really cool. Uh, but so a great accomplishment and i would say i mean even if patrick marleau does win the stanley cup at some point probably i would say still the biggest biggest accomplishment of his career for sure so that'll do it for us this week thank you so much for tuning in or for pressing a button whatever i don't know exactly what you're doing but I'm so glad that you listened stay safe stay at home if you can and i will talk to you again next week